Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. Before I introduce the guests for this show, I thought I might give you this little hint about the topic we'll be discussing. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. That's right. We're talking about public speaking and effective communication. One of the men you just heard from had some ideas that were a little controversial. And as we know, things didn't end well for him. But it's hard to deny the fact that he had a way with words. He was able to mobilize an entire nation and gain support for his ideas through the sheer power of his oratory finesse. Today's guest a man who displays a bit of oratory finesse himself, is Boo Holmes. Boo is the modern-day Lionel Logue, the historical character played by Geoffrey Rush in The King's Speech. Boo is a trained actor who's turned his attention to helping people master the art of communication. Boo sees the power of effective communication as the ultimate gift and as a leader's most prized asset. This episode is jam-packed with invaluable advice for anyone who wants to hone the power of the spoken word. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Boo Holmes. Boo Holmes, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. You're very welcome, Dave. Nice to speak to you. Boo there's a lot of studies out there that suggest that some people, a lot of people, in fact, are more fearful of speaking in public than they are of dying. That must be good <laughs> for business for you. It's very good for business. In fact, there was a, there was a poll in the Evening Standard with that very statistic. Um, it's, it's fascinating. And, and, Dave, the thing that I'd, I'd like to share with you initially is that I, I do come at this sort of training from a slightly different angle. I truly believe, and I don't want to lose credibility with you straight up, but I I truly believe that everybody is a brilliant, brilliant communicator. But the key, the key is comfort. So when you're with friends, your your lovely wife, family, um, mates that don't intimidate you, you get your point across brilliantly and you don't even stop to think how you did it or what you did. But when you're in a situation when there's a bit more expectation, when uh, you're a bit more intimidated or perhaps there's more people than you thought, that's when you don't get your point across as well as you could. That's when you're out of your comfort zone and that's where the fear kicks in and that's where I'm hopeful and tend to help people out. You've hit on a, a bunch of points that are all line up to questions I had organised to ask you, actually. So we'll get to all of that because it's fascinating stuff. But first of all, I just want to know from your point of view, why is it so important that our leaders are effective public speakers or effective communicators? Well, I think it's a lot of that is to do with clarity of, of message. And so often when... I ask a room full of people, what makes a good leader? One of the first things that comes back is 
consistency of message, clarity of message. You know, the fact that they are able to to give those, you know, not necessarily good news conversations comfortably, confidently, but they're always able to make their point and so that everyone is fully understanding of, of, of the message. So I think for, for leaders, there's, there's a number of different ingredients, but I would say, and the, the leadership stuff that I work on, it's, you know, my specialty is communication, and that's, I feel, top of the tree. It's, it's absolutely essential. So, Boot, tell us a little bit about your business and how you came to be part of a business like that. Well, I um, am an actor, and I trained to be an actor 23 years ago. And at drama school, I met my current business partner, John Bacon, who I believe you've had some correspondence with in tracking with He was and... very helpful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, he's he's a, a smashing guy. And when we left drama school as well as expecting to become the next Bond, we thought realistically what we need to do is have another string to our bow. And we'd learned lots of stuff around impact and body language, first impressions, which really fascinated me. So I looked into it more and suggested that John and I, for, for beer money and in between huge film commitments, <laughs> we, put, we put together a... a a workshop that we could sell corporately to, to help people communicate more consistently. And when I went to uh, an open day presentation skills course, I was horrified at how unindividual the whole process was. You know, there were about 16 people on the course and people were told, this is what you need to do, just get up and do it. So and as, thought, as if no, they were all at the same standard and they were all making the same mistakes. Exactly. And it's a much more personal process, I believe, than that. So we put together a course which enabled us to be much more specific, much more personal. And to be honest, yeah, the acting um, was okay for a while, but this became very enjoyable. And, and also, I had much more control over this. And so about 10 years ago, we relaunched as Speak the Speech, which is the company name, and just thought, okay, well, now this becomes the daytime job and the acting, if I've got time, will fit in around that, which is exactly what's happened every so often. I get offered a job and I can't do it. Every so often I get offered a job and I can. So, so you still, uh, but you at still the moment, do a little bit of acting on the side? I'd like to say yes, but I haven't for, for over a year now. So, um, and what sort of things would we have seen you on? Have well, you been I've, on the bill? Surely every English actor's been on the bill at some stage. That's the misnomer. Yes, I have been on the bill. Uh, <laughs> I played a, knew a, it. A, yeah, I played a boyfriend of one of the regulars. But I, yeah, I, I, I'm normally a doctor or a nice policeman. Really? That's your that's, <laughs> that's your my, pigeonhole, hey? Yeah, that's my that's my my level. I, occasionally, I will play a a lawyer or um, you know, uh, I played once a. A prosecuting council in right. in quite a big series over here. So yeah, I, 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 that's my my standard casting. Very good. All right. Well, back to that. I could talk about that for ages because it's fascinating, but it's not the guts <laughs> of where we're trying to go here. So, tell me about the type of people that you work with. When people come and see you and say, "Boo, I, I really need some help with the way I communicate," are they people who are in crisis, or are they people who have come across a new role that they're going to need a a heightened skill set, or are they just professionals looking to add to their general skill set? Who, who are your clients? Well, I guess there's there's a there's a, a huge sort of mix in the corporate world. Lots of people will have a review with a manager or um, a discussion with other partners. In the case of of legal firms, and then they'll say, actually, yeah. We, we, you know, you need to come across a little more effectively, so they'll get us in for a, perhaps an individual coaching. On other occasions, people are offered a specific presentation skills course. So, you know, we always insist that we keep the numbers to, to, to a very manageable and a level that we can still personalise it so we don't have any more than six people on a course. Um, but also there's people that are told by their managers 
you need to do this. There are other people, such as my commitments with the UN, that have a very big speech to make and just want to run it by a third eye. So that's in, in the corporate world, that tends to be the requirement. And um, in the sports world, I guess the guys just want a bit more help and to come across it with a bit more ease in front of, uh, of the press or their sponsors. Wow. So I, I see three main groups there, and uh, I just want to start with the first one, the, the, the type of person who's a, a professional, perhaps a new leader, and their boss just says to them, you need to go and do this course. What sort of, what sort of skills or, or problems are you seeing most commonly there? Who do you expect to see when you get a gig like that? It's interesting. There are, there are definite types of sort of guys that will turn up. So I, I would think normally the, my, the general person at that sort of level suffers with, with a bit of nerves and they'll also, what comes from that is they'll, their delivery will be too quick. Right. It'll be unconsidered, yeah. And, and also they tend to, to lack a little bit of... of if you like presence or impact, so they'll what we call make themselves small instead of standing tall. So rather than take control of the circumstance, they'll rather wilt in the circumstance and and try not to be noticed rather than take control of the room. How do you? T- I was just going to ask, how do you teach someone to have presence? But I think you've hinted at part of the answer there, at least that it's body language for a start. It's very much body language. Uh, it, it's <laughs> it's an interesting thing. There's there's a lot of research that suggests if you stand tall and try and certainly look as if you're enjoying the space, but if you stand tall, you literally release more testosterone and you actually reduce anxiety. So not only does it increase the confidence of the audience in you, but it also increases your own confidence. So that's going to have a, a huge effect on, on the impact you make and also the, the sort of presence that you exhibit. So often your presence is gauged in probably the first sort of minute to 90 seconds. So I would always suggest to people that if you're about to walk into a room for an interview for a meeting where you want to make an impact or perhaps a more standard presentation, what you need to do is stand tall. Because uh, if you think, I know you can't see me, Dave, but when we wait for an interview, normally we will huddle up, we'll curl in, into a seat, we'll keep our head very much downward. And then, you know, we, we're almost like lambs to the slaughter when we go in. But if you can, even if it's just in the restroom, stand really tall spread your shoulders, push your head up, the impact that that will have uh, is, is remarkable. Get and that you also... testosterone flowing, hey? Yes, yeah. And it's not the, uh, you know, the, the testosterone that you sometimes see in a, a sports thing. It's, it's, it's a very definite thing that you can release in yourself, which, which helps. And you'll get that by standing tall. And I always call it, doing things on your terms. Take ownership of any situation you're in and a great way of doing that, a great way of showing that you're doing that is just to settle yourself and stand tall. When you start working with people in in any of the categories we've talked about, how do you simulate the stress that they'll be feeling when they are in that big meeting or in front of the courtroom or making the big presentation? When they come and see you, perhaps it's one-on-one or in a small group, you're in a pretty comfortable kind of a position. And as you've already suggested, it's the stress and the anxiety that puts people under pressure. How do you simulate that? Well, I guess what, what happens is that there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, an amount of expectation and pressure in the fact that they're coming to see someone who's going to be assessing them. But also, I film them. Right. So That puts people under pressure straight away, doesn't it? Yeah, there's nowhere to hide. The first thing I say to them is, look, you are going to get filmed at various times today, and that normally gets people into a pressured situation, and so you'll see the the areas that they're most uncomfortable with 
much more apparently when you stick the camera on them. You mentioned some very interesting clients at the UN. Are you literally preparing an individual who's already quite experienced in the diplomatic world? Are you helping them prepare for a specific speech? And how do you go about doing that? Well, sometimes it's that. Sometimes there's, there's people that are less experienced that are about to have their first exposure uh, to the media. Sometimes it is a very well-known individual who's going to be making a big speech. What I, I tend to do is have a look at the speech and my most worn-out question is, so what? Why are you telling me that? Because it's boring, and if you're trying to keep an audience enthused and, you know, really lapping up your message, it's got to be sexier than that. And one of the problems with, with politicians generally, but especially with a body like the UN, is that they all become far, far too formal. Yeah. And, and, the, and the spoken word is far easier received informally. Yeah. So why, a lot why of is that? Why do our politicians go into this? You know, I've noticed it in, in the UK. Um, I've noticed it in Australia and everywhere else I've been. Politicians go into this really formal, almost robotic style that they can't possibly think anyone is interested in when they're speaking to a camera or to an audience. I'm sure they don't speak that way when they're at home with their family or they're talking in, informally <laughs> to their colleagues. What makes them think that that's how we want those messages delivered? Well, I think what, what happens to a degree is if you take the police, for instance, they, they do it very purposely to put distance and status between them and the person they're speaking to. Right. And I think to a degree, I think politicians do that as well. I think that they, they feel that it gives them a little more stature if, if they speak... You know, if you listen to uh, the, the example I gave yesterday, actually, was, you know, when Churchill called the country to arms, which is the biggest thing he could possibly have done, he needed to have the whole country on his side. What he didn't say to them is, over the coming weeks, there may be an occasion for skirmishes along the southern region of the United Kingdom. Now, he said, we'll fight them on the beaches. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Look at how simple he kept his message. And I think it's just, it's much easier for us to receive it and I can only think that politicians, if they've got a slightly sticky message, cloud it further by being a little too formal. And do you think that the good politicians, the politicians who have a successful career, are the ones that can share a message in a way that we can relate to, a, a warmer kind of way of speaking to the public? Because there seems to be a, a, an awful lot of them that stick around for a long time with that very robotic way of communicating. So I guess maybe I've answered my own question. You don't, you don't need to be warm and, and effective uh, in your communication to be a, a, a long-lasting politician. Well, I think that depends on, on the area that they're in. But, yeah, I'm staggered at how many politicians are just very, very, you know, seemingly robotic um, jobs were. You know, I'd, I'd, when I grew up, whether I liked them or not, politicians were a, a fascinating breed. And you had people that, that passionately dealt with certain issues. I, I'm not for one second suggesting that politicians don't passionately pursue answers and, and you know, to, to put certain things in place. But it just seems that they're, a lot of the time, they take their, their own passion or evident passion out of it. And I don't know why. I don't know why. 
Is it is it because they're so carefully looking to avoid criticism and gotcha moments? Yeah. They're willing to sacrifice being good so that there's yeah. no chance that they're terrible. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Dave. I think, yeah, if I play it safe, there's less of me to get shot down. So um, let's play it safe. It is. It, it's very much that. I mean, occasionally I will teach someone to perhaps repeat the question. One of the things that we quite often do when we communicate is, is put unwanted pressure on ourselves by giving too much information too quickly. So if you ask me a question, and it was a tricky question, I do occasionally say to people, well, look, buy yourself a little more time. You must always show that you've received the question and that you're considering it, which will give your answer much more credibility. But interestingly, sometimes repeat the question. And that at that point, I think politicians are guilty of, as well as other people, but they're guilty of becoming a bit more formal because they will try and reshape the question to give the answer that they want to give rather than the answer you've asked for. That is something that I'm just so conscious of when I'm listening to politicians speak. The percentage of time where they actually answer the question that was asked is so enormously low. It's minuscule. Do they think that they're getting that over us? Do they really think that we're not noticing? Or is it just such a determination not to be caught out? Again, they're giving up the chance to be good and engaging so that they're not giving themselves the chance to be terrible. I, I think there's a bit of that, Dave. But I also think that it's... Politics is so much about sound bites and little messages to get across. And, you know, they'll probably go into a chat show or a radio interview and think, yeah, I don't really care what I'm asked. What I need to get across to the public is that if they vote for me, I'll do this, this and this. And if there's even half the chance in one of the questions that I'm asked, that's the answer I'm going to give. It really denigrates the essence of communication, doesn't it? I think so. I think so. And it makes you much less authentic and real than you could be, in, in my opinion. So, Boo, how conscious of you are you of the fact that you're a speech coach and you spend your time speaking and you're speaking to me right now? Are you being judged more harshly than others because of the job that you have? Do you feel that pressure? I was thinking earlier, Dave, I'm erring and umming terribly here. <laughs> Don't worry, I edit those out. <laughs> But I'm, but I'm on my holiday. I'm, I'm quite chilled. I, yeah, I don't mind being judged. It's part of being an actor, and you know, occasionally you're, you're not quite as effective. I think what I always try and do, and what I try and teach people to do, is to give yourself the very best chance at coming across at your best. And a lot of that <clears throat> is being a little more aware of, of your body language, but also a lot of it is is people's general intent. And I I talk to people about their energy and saying, you know, if if you want your message to come across with a real warmth, speak from the heart. Don't give me facts and dry figures because it's dull. But if it matters to you, it's got a much better chance of mattering to me. So if if I've given myself the best chance, I think it's okay if if you don't come across quite as well, or if there's a couple of things that you didn't quite say, if your overall intent is really truthful and, and higher energy, I, I'm, you know, that's, that's what I'd aim to, to teach people and that's what I hope comes across with me. I hope that it sounds like it matters. When we're listening to a speaker, are we tending to judge them more on the content they're delivering or on their style or their skill as a speaker? It's interesting. There's... There is some research by a guy called Professor Arabian, and he did a huge amount of research on what impacts us the most. Now, there's a very scary, scary statistic. Of any communication that we receive, what we'll remember the most clearly, 60% of what we'll take away from any communication is the physical impression the speaker made on us. Wow. We'll remember what they wore, how confident they appeared, how friendly they were. 
30% of what we remember is how we audibly received what was said. So maybe, you know, did they have a slight accent? Did they speak really quickly? Did they speak from the heart or were they a numbers man? 10% of what we take away, 10% is what they said. Wow. That's low. It's low. So <laughs> it's not to say that your content isn't important. So much of, of your preparation is what gives you your confidence. Yeah. So that's crucial that you're able to, to you know, perhaps prepare, get your content energy-friendly so that you're able to, you know, give yourself that chance of building your own confidence but in terms of an audience, if you're physically there, it's massively important, massively important to have a positive and good body language because that's what they'll remember the most clearly. Should we each be searching for this authentic, perfect voice for ourselves that is always our voice and always our style, no matter the situation? Or should we be more thinking about shaping ourselves to the situation we're in? I think, you see, the days of... of the town crier type presentations, I think, are long gone. I do feel that those presentations are still made, and if you watch Obama, you'll see someone that still does it pretty well. But I think we need to be adaptive of, of any situation that we're in. I think it's very, very important to, to still come across with the right impact, even if you're having a one-to-one, -one, even if you're in a, a small meeting, sat down, you still need to have various tools and techniques and components that you're aware of to enable you to come across at your best. You mentioned President Obama there. Tell us about some of the people who were the standout speakers, in your opinion, in the, in the public sphere. I mean, I think Obama is very, very good. He's, he, I think recently he's been rather criticised for not quite having the the substance and for working too much on bringing his golf handicap down. But he is a, is a brilliant communicator. If you think of how very, very simple he's kept his messages, it's remarkable. He's had, um, you know, some of his key moments with the, you know, we're not the blue states of America. We're not the red states of America. We are the United States. Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us. The spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. So it's very, very sort of um, uplifting, emotionally driven, but as I said earlier, really, really simple. The message was loud and clear. So I think he's a very, very good communicator. There are many that I feel come across very well. Unfortunately, uh, a number of sports people, I don't think necessarily do themselves justice. Some of them do, some of them, but I'm, I'm specifically thinking of a lot of soccer players don't, don't necessarily do themselves great favours. I was I just going to say, you and I were at the same game at Trent Bridge, and I don't know if you hung around for the captain's speeches, but I thought I Alistair Cook and Michael Clark were both remarkable um, for the polish of the way they spoke, and even more so because they actually told us something. They, they gave us some information. They didn't speak in generic cliches that could have been about any game at any time. They were, they were really alive in the messages they sent. Did you hang around and listen to those? I did, very, very much so. I've, I've helped um, some of the boys in the England team. So I, I was waiting with interest to see how um, Alistair Cook did. And, and the thing that was so good with both, both Clark and Cook is that they were, they were very, very responsive to each other, which, uh, you know, they both got quite emotional and they shared that. One of the key things to remember, Dave, is that human beings always reflect what they're given. So... What do you mean if I'm, Well, if I'm very, very dour and don't seem to really care about what I'm saying, very, very quickly... 
you that's how you'll receive it in the same way that if i meet you and have a nice smile on my face you'll immediately smile back and so you've got a you've got a safer playing field to you know you're reflecting what you want reflected back now with the both of the the boys on that particular day i thought they were great they were very very uh, they weren't just going through the the next game and blah 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 the the normal clichés they were telling us how they felt they were telling us how it felt to win it but also how respectful they were for the for the person that had either beaten them or had had lost to them and it was as you say it was a real conversation they were real men engaging in real emotions and sharing that with us yeah, look, I've been very lucky, Athers, to, to play over 100 test matches for my country. I, I certainly didn't expect that as a, as a young boy having a dream to, to play cricket for Australia. I think your teammates, I think, again, I've been lucky in, when I first came into the team. I had, you know, 10, 11 older brothers or, or you know, second fathers, all those old guys looking after me, taking care of me and, and helping me uh, grow and learn to, to one day get to a position where I could try and give back and help the younger players. And hopefully I've done that. Um, Sick of crying on television, I know that. My God. Um, yeah, and like I said, it's the right time. There's so much talent in that change room. The boys will be fine. Look, as, from the team's point of view, to, to win like we've done is just, you know, beyond belief. Um, I didn't think we were quite ready to win the Ashes at the beginning of it because I thought you really needed a group of players who'd been like match hardened. Um, but the guys out there have surprised me. You know, we've really. We've won really critical moments um, and players, players have really stepped up, which shouldn't surprise me, but it has. You know, they've really made that big step from guys with little experience to kind of match winners for England and hardened professionals and uh, hardened players for England. And, and, you know, every one of those guys can be very proud of the way they've handled the pressure. Now, that's why it's memorable. That's why it's stuck with us. If they just went through the, you know, the usual... And, and typical, typical cliches, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as memorable, would it? You mentioned earlier that you work with some sports people and you just mentioned there a couple of the English fellows. Tell us why it is that sports people, almost, almost even worse than politicians, tend to slip into cliches where they might as well not be being interviewed at all. We might as well not see them at all because they tell us nothing, they give us no news, they give us no insight to their personality. Why have sportsmen defaulted to that by and large? Well, I, firstly, what I would say, Dave, is I'm very, very encouraged by a lot of the cricketers I work with and a lot of the rugby boys that I work with. Those are two fields that I have an awful lot to do with. Uh, lots of, of rugby league players, lots of rugby union players, my partner works, uh, John works a lot with jockeys and a, a number of cyclists. So there's lots and lots of, of people that we've worked with. I keep, I'm not going to name drop, but lots of golfers. A lot of these guys are very, very bothered about how they come across. But they've spent a huge amount of their life dedicated to honing other skills. Yeah. So... Perhaps they do go on to autopilot when they're being interviewed because, you know, that's, that's what they've always done. I have to say I'm, I'm very encouraged because they come to me and they do want to make a difference. They do want to come across more effectively. Well, there, there was what a, do they want to achieve with that? Are they looking to give themselves a more polished performance or are they looking to give the fans more insight? What's their goal when, they, when you say they want to make a difference? Well, I think it varies hugely. If you take, for instance, there was a Formula One driver. He unfortunately recently has lost his drive. He still drives and gets paid brilliantly, so don't feel too <laughs> sorry for him. But there's a, there's a driver called Paul DeResta. Now, he was described in the press as being Andy Murray's grumpy younger brother, and it really upset him. So he came along and said... That's not a fair reflection of me. I want people to see me as I am. Other people, there's, I've worked with rugby captains, and they've said, 
you know, I, I still find myself not being able to get my message across sometimes at half time to the to the guys. Other people suddenly go on to TV and have to analyse games and they just want to be able to do it comfortably rather than being absorbed and, and overridden by the sensation of, oh, I'm being watched and, and you know, coming across uncomfortably. So there, there's a number of, and they're ne nearly always good reasons. They want to give their, their fans value as well. The interesting thing is, I mentioned earlier, soccer players ultimately to, you know, when they're at a certain level, don't need a life after sport. So yeah. they don't care how right. they come across. That's Doesn't interesting. Matter. Yeah. So uh, you, you did touch upon it there with one example of the, uh, the driver who was coming across in the media in a way that he thought didn't reflect him, so he wanted to fix that. What are some of the other motivators? Is it often a crisis where they've had a terrible interview and they've looked bad, or is it a, a point or a maturity in their career where at some point they think, hang on, I'm, I'm on TV pretty regularly here. Maybe they're not getting the best of me. Perhaps I should go and work on this and round myself out a little. I guess there's, there's examples of, of a number of those things. I've had... I've had people uh, that, that have come along and said, listen, I, I got onto TV last night and that just, you know, I had friends phoning me saying, what are you doing? That's not you. What, you know, why weren't you smiling? Why were you this and that? So I think that a, a number of times people think that wasn't a fair reflection of them. So they'll come along then. Other times people are suddenly faced with you've now got to go to your sponsors and get your next three years' money. You've got to go to the coach and, you know, this is the last year of your contract. You know, you're an experienced player. You should be doing more in the boxes. And so, you know, there, there, there's a number of, of different things. I, as I said earlier, I like to think that I'm able to adapt very, very individually. And so, you know, one of the players I worked with just about two, three weeks ago, is captain. He's just been made captain. And he said, so I've got to talk a lot more to the press, but also I've got to talk a lot more to the players. I, you know, I can't just be the, the joker. I've got to now show a bit of gravitas at certain times. I've got to also come across in a much more measured way at certain times. So that's what you'll work on. So how do you help him do that? How do you help him give messages that are clearer and more precise and appropriate to the team at halftime? Well, I break it down very simply, although it's a very, very individually received thing, but I break it down very simply. There are three main components that you have to be in charge of to communicate effectively. You have to have a much more positive body language and be aware of what your body language is saying about you. Is it being defensive? Are you being closed off? Are you as open as you could be? Little things like can people see your hands? Because if they don't see your hands, they won't trust you. You also need to have a good intent. This is what I mentioned earlier. Your energy has to be higher. It has to matter to you because if it doesn't matter to you, how on earth can you expect it to matter to anybody else? The problem there is that so often when people feel intimidated, they tend to shut themselves off. They tend to take the batteries out. Hence, they don't come across anywhere near as well as they could. But if you imagine yourself, Dave, I know you've got a lovely, lovely little boy, but you imagine if you got out for a really nice meal with your, with your wife. So it's your favourite restaurant. Imagine how you talk about things that you're passionate about when you're at that restaurant. You don't just colour by numbers, do you? You're actually speaking from the heart. And it's about being able to access that so that your message has much more impact. So is it as simple, uh, do you think, that a lot of us could improve the way we speak in meetings or publicly or, or on podcasts simply by speaking the way that we speak to our wife and our friends when we're comfortable? Absolutely. It's about being able to access that. That's the trick. But yeah, what you want is to, because that's when you're at your best. I should think your wife, if, if she's anything like mine, is probably your harshest critic. But the thing is, is how often do we see a friend or 
you know, Michelle would see me interviewed and she'd say, well, that's not you. You've always got a little bit of a, a twinkle in your eye. And, it, you know, suddenly the penny started to drop. And I thought, that's not really a fair reflection. That's me playing it desperately safe. That's me a lot of the time on autopilot. I think we respond much more when, you know, we all like to like our speakers. It's so much nicer, depending on the message, but it's so much nicer if someone's got a smile on their face. Or like with Michael Clark, you saw how much it mattered to him. He got choked up. It literally caught in his throat because he was desperately upset that he hadn't played as well as he had wanted to as a captain. Those are the people we respond to. And that's the energy I mean. It's that emotional connection and emotional commitment. So many people say to me, Boo, I need to stop you there because it's easy for you. You give a very, very interesting talk and body language is interesting. But I have to go next week to the European Court at Brussels and talk for an hour about changing a legal document by five words. It's boring. It is boring. It's dull. But my answer is always the same, always. I say to people, I understand that is tough, but get on with it. If you cannot find a way of speaking with commitment and energy about something, don't bother saying it. Send me an email. When we speak... That's when we can convince. That's when we can persuade. So why, why switch all of those attributes off? So by being engaged and caring about the message we're sending, that's one of the ways we can access that fantastic, authentic communicator that we have when we're relaxed, Absolutely. talking with our friends. But I imagine Absolutely. that the other big barrier is getting over the anxiety. So we've talked about being engaged. That's one thing, not yeah. switching off, caring. But what about yeah. not being put off by the gravity of the moment? It's interesting. What I did just want to do, Dave, because I said earlier there are three main components. I gave you two. Right. The, other one is, the other one is pace. So take your time. If you're considered... The audience don't have to do the considering, so your message gets much stronger. The other component is a huge, huge thing in terms of you coming across at your best, which is the content. And we spoke about this earlier. Make it easier. Make it informal. Don't speak to people in the third person or speak to them too formally. It comes across too stodgily. But back now to your question of how do we deal with our own anxiety? Well, that is the million-dollar question. What I would say is that there are a couple of physical things you can do to calm yourself, which, surprise, surprise, we don't do enough of when we're under pressure. The key one is breathing, breathing properly. So often we put ourselves into a slight sort of panic mode because we aren't breathing enough. It's like if you, if you saw someone having a panic attack on the street, what you'd do is you'd get them to breathe. So when, in point of fact, you're having a panic attack, you need to just compose yourself and allow yourself to breathe. It's so true. You, you, those moments when you're feeling anxious, you really do feel yourself breathing less and then struggling to catch up and, and get a deep breath. It's an amazing physical phenomena. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and breathing is an absolute life force. It's really, really, you know, it's, it's, it's essential for all of us. But we forget to do it when it most matters. And we actually, you know, we, we actually start shallow breathing And after about three minutes of shallow breathing, the brain physically starts shutting itself down. So if the brain does that, and the reason it's doing it is to allow the other main organs to have the oxygen that you are bringing in. But when the brain shuts down, we literally panic. I have people saying to me, I was so nervous, I couldn't think straight. Well, you can't think straight because your brain isn't working properly. It's that simple. 
So breathing is one of those things that we can get under control. What yes. else can we get under control to fight our anxieties? Well, what I, what I quite often teach people, and, and one of the big things is I've learned from the sports world, is there's a, there's a technique that sports people use. A lot of our fear, a lot of our anxiety comes from the unknown. We don't know how the talk will be received. We don't know how the interview is going to go. So we are fearful of what's going to happen. What I tell people to do is what all of the sports people that I work with, to a greater or lesser extent, use. It's a technique called visualization. So visualize yourself in that circumstance, but doing it really well so that you can build your confidence. So take golfers, for instance. Before they play a shot, they visualize the shot that they want to play four or five times. So by the time they play the shot, they're familiar with the process they're going to go through. And the more familiar you are with something, the less frightened you'll be of it and the more excited you can become by it. So a lot of cricketers, we were at the cricket the other day, Dave, a lot of cricketers... And I suggest that the, uh, some of the Aussie boys could have done it a bit more. But a lot of the cricketers picture the first 30 to 50 deliveries they're going to face. And they're the worst deliveries that they could possibly have. There'll be bounces around the head. There'll be that uncertain corridor. You know, all of the worst deliveries they could face, they'll face 30 of them in their mind's eye before they go out to bat. So when they get there, well... I've already faced 30, and I'm still alive. Not too many of the Aussies faced 30 deliveries in total, <laughs> did they? Would have been good if they did. We might have made, you know, 62 runs perhaps. <laughs> but listen, the other thing is with that is what I always say to people is if you've got a meeting that you're nervous about, if you, if you are in a very challenging situation, before you go into it, visualise how you want to perform. How do you want to come across? And if you can visualise yourself doing it, but doing it well, it's remarkable how much that will build your confidence. So I, I always recommend people don't, you know, I'm often asked, Dave, and maybe you're, you're going to ask as well, but I'm frequently asked, how long should I prepare? And my answer is always quite a scary one. I say to people, you need to prepare an hour for every minute you speak. Wow. And people say, yeah, and people say, I can't do that. I haven't got 20 hours. I'm giving the talk on Friday. But what I say to people is, yeah, I don't want you laboring for 20 hours over what you're going to say. Maybe spend an hour, an hour and a half, thinking about the types of things you want to say in the meeting or at the presentation. But actually, so much of my presentation is done on the walk to work, in the shower. Think about how you want to say it and how you can come across at your best while you're saying it. That's what I mean by that sort of preparation. Are you one for being certain of the points that you want to make and then leaving it to the moment to articulate it? Or do you like to prepare the wording of the things that you're going to say? I think... If I'm honest, it varies. Most of the time, I just like to have uh, as much understanding as I can and then let the moment so that there's a naturalness there. The key thing is if I don't know something, I'll say, I don't know the answer to that. I'll have to get back to you. I don't like it when people, you know, give me flannel. So I, I like to, I, I think uh, honesty is a huge sort of ingredient in, in the whole makeup of it. But, yeah, I would say sometimes if I'm giving a, a more formal, dare I say that word formal, but if I'm giving a speech where a bit more formality is expected, I probably will think more in terms of the detail of, of stuff I'm going to say. But what I tend to do is give myself a, a framework, but then a freedom within the framework. So I have a set speech, but I probably work from five or six reminders and then, if I am stuck, if I've forgotten something I was going to say, I can go to the original speech and have a look at it and say, ah, yeah, that's what I was going to say about that. So I'm not reading from notes, 
but I've got an absolute certainty of, and, of, of all the message I'm going to give. But I just work from reminders so that I can talk to an audience rather than at them. And is that how you would always prescribe for the people that you work with? I'd, that's how I'd like to do it. So I, that's what I normally recommend. Unless people tell me otherwise, if that's a real difficulty or possibly a, a role that they have, yeah, I don't, um, I, I wouldn't see much variance to that. I always say, give yourself the best chance of having a real and clear understanding of what you want to say, but occasionally allow yourself to say it in the most natural way. If you read it also, if you've got your notes and you're reading your notes, that they're a safety net, so you're much more likely to read from the notes rather than speak to the audience. And communication is at its best when we share it with a really good connection. What are some of the tips you've got for us about just giving good, clear messages on a, on a sentence level? I'm very conscious of the fact that when I speak, and I've done it the whole time through our interview today, I might say 50 words when it could be said in 10. I have a tendency to repeat myself when I've already said something and it doesn't need to be repeated. I, I use different words to say it again. How can we sort that out in our own articulation and our own communication style so that we're nice and clear and succinct and interesting? I do think a big area around that is taking a bit more time. If we speak too quickly, we don't have that consideredness that I mentioned earlier. And also, there is more chance of us going off on a tangent. Because when we're a little nervous, when we're a little uncomfortable, what we tend to do is think at the same time that as we're speaking. And of course, if you're thinking it while you're saying it, it's not going to be as measured as if you think about it and then say it. So I suggest to people with the pace, walk don't run. If I'm running, I don't have as much control as I have when I'm walking. I can be much more certain when I'm walking because I could see, perhaps if I'm walking through a forest, I can see the obstacles that I need to get round or step over. If I'm running, I don't give myself anywhere near the same chance of, of assessing the possible problems I'm going to have. That's a very helpful metaphor. Yes, that's a, yeah, I'm quite pleased with that one, actually. <laughs> you just came up with that, then, that one then, did you? No, it's one, actually, that John and I have used before. But it's, that's very much how I like people to see it. And, and I do think that that's a massive part of it. We put so much pressure on ourselves when we're a little nervous by speaking quickly. We want to get it over and done with. And actually, it needs to take as long as it needs to take. But if you're a little more measured, your message, just by the sheer nature of being more composed and measured, will come across in a more composed and measured manner. That's very so good do, advice. I'm going to take you on terms. that. Yeah. <laughs> going back to what I said earlier, Dave, the other massive thing is speak informally. Don't write necessarily informally, but when we speak, keep it simple. Keep your language simple. Don't use words. Don't use acronyms. Don't use, don't put pressure on yourself by becoming someone that you're not every single day. Boo, when people come to see you for help, are they ever as bad as they think they are? Rarely. Quite often I'll show people themselves back on camera for the first time and a comment that I frequently get is, actually that's not as bad as I thought. Where do they underestimate it's, themselves? Well, I think what happens is the, the speakers that we're very exposed to and one that we mentioned earlier as being one that we both admire, Obama, we look at Obama and we think he is a fantastic presenter and I can't present like that, so I'm not a fantastic presenter. Well, actually, why would you try and present like him? That's him. Yeah. Why don't you just try and present as yourself? You'll take a lot more pressure off. It's much easier to do it. And the impact will be much higher because you'll come across as much more authentic and real. And what about the opposite? Are there people you come across often who are nowhere near as good as they think they are? Yes. <laughs> In a word. 
And that's where do they, where do they overestimate themselves? Well, quite often it's because they haven't stopped and looked at how they come across. And they, they, their perception is, well, I've always done very well. I'm a partner of a law firm or I've done this, I've done that. So why do I need to change? And then you show them and I think a lot of it is a denial because they don't want to face up to the, to the real harsh problem of, of how they do come across. But, yeah, I, there, is, there is that flip side and it's, that's quite hard to deal with. Eventually, you can always get the message across because I get armed with them on tape. And if you truly think that looks great, that sounds great, then go away and give that. But if you want me to, to help you put a couple of things in place to improve it, there can be a massive difference. And generally, ego can be overcome at that stage. How can people listening to this use what you've said today to run a little health check across their communication styles and techniques to make sure that they're not working on things that they don't need to work on? Um, and are not ignoring things that they, they probably could work on a little bit? If I gave one piece of advice, and it would come in, in, a, in two or three different elements, what I would always say is don't think of your presentation skills, so those moments when you're under extreme pressure, don't think of those necessarily in isolation. Try and be more aware of your communication abilities all the time. So the next time you're in a pub, look how much energy someone uses when they're speaking to a group of people and they're telling five or six people a funny story. Look how much they commit in terms of their energy. But also think about when you're on a phone, how quickly someone's speaking or if you just listen intently, you can hear that they're still sending an email. So the more aware you are of communication generally, the better you can become at it by putting certain things into place that you've looked and seen and, and saw how effective they were. But if there's one question that I always say to people to ask themselves, it would be this. I say to people generally at the end of my session, every single time. I, I truly believe, Dave, that communication is a wonderful, wonderful gift. It allows you to interview me very effectively. It will allow you to build a fantastic relationship with your son. It allows you to build a career. It is a fantastic gift. But communication is also frequently excused and we frequently take it for granted. So I say to people, why don't you ask yourself a simple question on a very regular basis? Ask yourself this. If you met someone in your life once and you met them for 20 minutes, how would you want that person to describe you and remember you? And the answer is always yours to give. I don't want to be someone that people say, I'm not sure who you mean, mate. I don't remember him at all. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, I think I know the one you mean. He was the one that was very, very serious and kept going on about the figures last July. Yeah, I think I know the guy you mean, but I'm not sure. I don't want to be that man. I want to be the man that people instantly say, of course I remember him. He was a really, really friendly guy. He was able to take on board all of the things that were troubling me and he came across in a really friendly manner. Yeah, I won't forget him, top guy. That, that's the man, Dave, that I want people to remember. That's the person I want to offer up. That's and terrific. We can all, <laughs> but we can all do it, Dave. We can all do it, but it will require you, it will require you to put a bit more in a bit more regularly. But I promise you, I promise you, if you do, it will be worth it. Boo, that's terrific advice. I've got four more very brief questions for you before I let you have your Saturday back. This lets us dig into the inherent boo. 
Tell us about the Saturday night you most look forward to. A big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? Oh, that's a fantastic question. What Saturday night do I most look forward to? Both of those, really. I, what I would like or what I'd be able to sustain the most regularly is a quiet night in with some close friends. And I love those nights where they just end up being one conversation. You know, sometimes you get more than six or eight people at a dinner party and it breaks into two or three conversations. But I love it when there's, I don't know, six, eight people around a table and it's just the one conversation. Those are very special nights. But I also love a big tear-up and, um, you know, too much to drink and, <laughs> and, and lots of people having a good laugh. So I'm man, hopefully, with a foot firmly in both camps. <laughs> All right, good answer. You'd be surprised how many people want to be in both camps. Next question. Are you likely to get bogged down in the be- in the detail or caught daydreaming? Have a wild guess, Dave. <laughs> I would say daydreaming. Yep, <laughs> every time. Very I good, all right. Don't do detail. You don't do detail? <laughs> Excellent. That's a very clear one. I like that. What about your decision-making? Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? I would have said I'm very emotionally driven. And, and because of that, I, I'm quite often, depending on the decision, I'm riddled with self-doubt. However, what I would say is when the stakes are really, really high, I'm staggered at how decisive I am. But if it's a, should I take a coat? Because I'm not sure if it's going to rain. Oh, well, if I don't take a coat, I might get wet. I can talk myself into uncertainty at the drop of a hat. But, you know, if my wife and I, you know, oh, shall we buy that house? Yes. Bang. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, it's not for discussion. I feel it in my stomach, so get on with it. Let's do it. All right, last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to have the route planned, the hotels booked and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car and drive? I'd like to say I get in the car, let down my hair and drive, but there is an element of me that has to know a little bit about what's coming up. Yeah, I'd say that my key driver is, yeah, let's just do it, but actually I'd want at least the first night booked. (laughs) Fair enough. The, the, the first night we can give you. Boo Holmes, thank you so much for your time. You've been enormously generous, especially considering it's Saturday morning. It's an absolute pleasure, Dave. And listen, I'd love to, to meet you face-to-face again as we, as we had that lovely, very memorable 20 minutes walking to the ground at Trent Bridge. And I know it didn't go as, as well as it could have for you, but, <laughs> but you, you instantly made a massive impression on both myself and my friend Guy that day. Um, so yeah, you're obviously doing the, the, if you met someone for 20 minutes thing, right? Because I remembered who it was instantly and thanks ever so much for, for asking me so many well thought out questions. Uh, that's very kind of you, Boo. Thank you. You guys made me feel so welcome when we were chatting because seri- I was seriously just following you to the ground thinking these guys look like they're going to the cricket. I'm going to follow them. And, uh, and then we got chatting and you were so kind. And you know what? I've got to tell you something really interesting. I told you that story about my wife's purse being stolen that day. Yes. I've, yes. Told, I've told three Englishmen that story and you all responded in exactly the same way. Do you remember the first thing you said? You said, I'm sorry. Every oh. Englishman I've said have said, I'm so sorry, as if, as if they were personally somehow partly responsible for that, as if they were representing their country. It was, it's, it's a very nice, it's a very nice it's, quality. Well, it's a, it, perhaps that's, there, that you've restored my faith. Perhaps there is, because I, I, I think that, that every man, whether it's an Australian man or an Englishman, should the first button that he should be able to push and instinctively push is one of kindness and empathy. I think you'll agree that Boo certainly practices what he preaches. The clarity of his messages was remarkable and the sparkle of his personality shone through every minute of our interaction. 
Boo taught me that communication is a full-body experience to be observed and admired through every aspect of our life. And above all, he taught me that communication is a gift to be cherished. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. 